James 4, useful and productive. I told you we would be uh, making our way through this. We are actually only a few weeks away from finishing this book. I know, it feels so soon, doesn't it? <laughs> I know. You get, you get used to, you know, a year plus something like Exodus, and then you're like, we you mean we're going to finish a book in a couple of months? That's not how this works. Yes, yes, it is. I actually know some guys who have tried to do James in like a year and a half, and I'm like, that's just brutal, man. How does anyone still talk to you? <laughs> it's like, you can't do a whole Sunday on V, I promise, but I think somebody has tried. So we are not endeavoring. We want to try to keep our, our whole units intact and keep our thought units going. So in this chapter, we are finishing chapter four. We are dealing again in this section on practical living. How do you live in light of who you are and why you are that way? So James has told you to live in wisdom. He has reminded you. And always remember, James, in the book of James, living in wisdom, having wisdom is your Bible code for repent and follow Jesus. Not your ideas, but his. How do you avoid hypocrisy? By living wisely. How do you live wisely? By turning from yourself, forsaking your sin, and following after Christ. How do you avoid hypocrisy in thought? Same thing. How do you tame the sins of your body and mind? Same thing. How do you live in a world honoring Christ? Same idea. You live wisely, meaning turning from yourself, repenting of sin, and trusting in Christ. Now, warning. We have a massive disclaimer. There are probably two... You know what? This is, this is important enough. We're coming around the mountain. You ready? There are probably two sections of James that are most, mis most misused. You say that three times fast. The first one is the ending of chapter two, the distinction between faith and works. So we covered that. If you missed it, you just have to go find it on YouTube or on the website somewhere. The other section, though, is what we're going to look at today. Because what we do so often is we violate all of our rules for Bible reading. So, because I know you guys remember these things, we make sure we cover them. What's our first rule with reading our Bible? What do we never do? Our first rule is a negative. Never, ever, ever read one verse. Now, assuming you have not read the one verse, you have looked at, say, an entire section, a little unit of thought. And you read that and go, hmm, that seems to be in conflict with something else. Where, pray tell, does the problem lie? Does the problem lie in the text or in your understanding of the text? The problem lies in your understanding of the text. So what is step one? Read it again. What is step two? Read it again. When you are still confounded, step three becomes to expand your context. Look at what has come before. Look at what comes after. Look at what chronologically comes before and comes after. Now, that's very, very important to remember that rule when dealing with something like the book of James. It's a letter. It's meant to be read in a single flow. Most of the, most of the churches that would have received this and people would have just sat down and read this. And if you want a fun experiment, go home and do that. You can read all five chapters of James in like less than 10 minutes. You can sit down and read a book in less than 10 minutes. You'll be like, ooh, I read a book today. Go me. Break your, break your arm, pat yourself in the back. It'll be good for you. But chronologically... What comes before it? Because I've told you before that more than likely this is the first book of the New Testament written. Somewhere between 44, 48 AD. This is written before the Jerusalem Council, before Paul writes Galatians, before most of the epistles, well, all of the epistles of the New Testament are written, before the Gospels are even written down. So chronologically, where do I go to predate James if there's nothing written down before him? Uh, not just the Old Testament. I actually go back to my Gospels. 
because what are my gospels recording? The teaching that comes before James. Remember our foundation. What is James basing everything he's teaching upon? Jesus. How do you know what Jesus taught you? Do you, do you sit at home? Do you go home, read James, and then sit on your couch, cross your legs, and go, hum, Jesus, teach me, hum. And then get like the download, the light shines through the ceiling fan or something, and like, ooh, now I know. Like, if someone claims that, what do you do? What's step one? No. Throw something, and step two is run. How? Screaming from the room. Okay. Throw things and then run screaming from the room. If someone gives you that, hey, I was sitting in my bathroom this morning after I was shaving and brushing my teeth, and the light shone through the bathroom window, and this is what God has for you. Ah! Every single time, okay? How do you know what Jesus taught you? You read your Bible. You go back to the words of your New Testament. You go back to the apostolic testimony. So we are going to have to make sure we do that this morning. Because if you do not do that, you're going to read the section of James and go, I'm I'm confounded here. So we're going to remember our foundations and go through this rightly. Sound like fun? Okay, let's dive in. Verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. Time out. We didn't get very far, did we? (laughs) You knew I was going to do that. I mean, come on, we do this every week. We We have to define our terms first. James cannot, okay, so do not speak against one another, brethren. If you had to summarize that in one word, what word would you use? Do not speak against one another, brethren. If you had to summarize that in one word, what word would you use? No, I don't think gossip. Gossip would be talking about one another. No, arguing would be uh, disagreeing over something or other. I'm speaking against you. I've come up to you and tell you something that I think you're doing is wrong. There it is. I'm judging you, aren't I? Oh, it's 2022. What's the one thing you never do in the world? You can't ever judge anything. No, that's evil, right? No. James cannot mean that you do not make a judgment. You have to make a judgment in order to live in this world. Why can I say that James does not mean you cannot make a judgment? Because I'm going to go back to the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 7. In the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. I read that verse because that's the verse that comes after the verse that everybody actually knows. Which, if you go back to your old King Jimmy, is, Judge not lest ye, we always, that's how everybody knows it too, you know, so ye be judged. We like to talk like pirates. Arr. So everybody goes, see, you can't make a judgment. You can't judge anybody because Jesus said, don't judge. No, no, what Jesus said was, judge not lest you be judged. For in the same way that you judge, you will be judged. Christian, that is awesome news. I want you to judge me by the standard I used to judge you. Because you know what my standard is? You're awful and no good, and Jesus can redeem and rescue you. See, I want that standard. I don't want you coming up to me in Walmart and going, you weren't perfect today. Duh! Have you met me? I'm not perfect most days. Forget today. Today's just the one you saw. Exactly. I want that standard, and I want that judgment. Jesus then goes on to tell you what? How do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? Well, you have a log in yours. You hypocrite, first. Anytime someone tells you to do something first, what do you know is coming in a minute? A second, right? First, take the log out of your eye so that you may then see clearly 
to remove the speck from your brothers. In other words, make a judgment. Do not pass a judgment. You have to make them. You do not pass them. And the reason why I can say that also is because James helps you out at the end of his book in James 5. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In order to see you going astray and to say something to you about it, I have to do what? I have to make a judgment that what you're doing is wrong and not in accordance with what is right. Now, the difference is, why was I able to rescue you? Because I proclaimed the mercies of Christ and the righteousness that is found in him because I did not pass a judgment. See, the difference between making and passing would be the difference of saying, get out, you can't be saved. Why don't we say that to more people? It'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? The excommunication shall continue until morale improves. <laughs> why, why don't we do that? But why is that bad, Christian? Isn't, isn't, isn't this the example that Paul gives you? But I found mercy as an example to others because I am the chief of sinners. If God can save me, my goodness, if he can save me, there's hope for the rest of you. If he can redeem Samson, if he can carry along Gideon, if he can rescue David, if he can carry Abram faithfully, if he can pick up Joseph, if he can change Judah, if he can do all of this, there's hope for you yet. Go team. And if there's hope for you, then there's hope for them also. That's the difference between making a judgment and passing a judgment. See, the world looks at you and goes, stop judging me. No. Because I will not stop proclaiming sin as sin. Because the minute I stop proclaiming sin as sin is the minute I have to also stop proclaiming that there is a redeemer and rescuer from your sin. It is to tell you that everything that I am is a lie. And every reason that I walk and stand is now moot. I can't do that. Therefore, I won't do that. Therefore, I will continue to call sin a sin so that we can celebrate the gracious God that has redeemed us. I mean, what do we celebrate this morning? A body broken for what? You and your sin. Blood spilled for a covenant to remind you of what? That redemption has been paid. The Lamb of God has come and sin has been undone. You must make a judgment all the time. I'm the guy who tells you to do what every morning? Look in the mirror and have what kind of a conversation with yourself? An honest one, meaning you should, have a, you should be making judgments about yourself each and every day. What is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, where you have fallen short and where Christ has carried you forward. You must. So this cannot mean do not make a judgment. It is in line with Jesus, meaning do not pass a judgment. Why else do I say that? Because James expands on this. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. This is why I have to leave this to God. God's law is meant to reveal character and nature, his and ours. See, God tells the people what? Be holy, for I am holy. Well, what does holiness look like? How, how now, brown cow? What do I do? How do I live in this world in holiness? Well, Leviticus helps you out. Oh, come on, you like that one, you know it. <laughs> Look, I'll, already, I'll warn you now. I make no promises for any weird pop culture references. We have already quoted a Linkin Park song in Sunday school today, okay? 
So, yes, in Sunday school. And you missed it. You missed it. I know you have to teach the children's class. It's okay. (laughs) God's law reveals character and nature, his and ours. What does his holiness look like? What does my lack of holiness look like? This is what Paul expands on in Romans, uh, Romans 7. What shall we say? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. What, is, what in the world does he mean by that? Okay, we've used this example before. Don't eat the cookie. What are you thinking about right now? Eat the cookie. Make the big old double stuffed Oreo, stick it on the counter until you don't eat it. I want the cookie. I didn't want the cookie until when? You told me I couldn't have one. That's what Paul is getting on about. Did you covet before the commandment said not to covet? Yes. You just didn't know what to call it. The commandment defined it. It reveals the brokenness, not of your actions, but of your heart who you are, and what you desire. So you were told not to covet, but I like coveting. I like looking at the things that I don't have and longing for them. It makes me happy. This is called window shopping, right? (laughs) Some of you are like, hey, wait a minute. That was too close, mister. Hey, I'm as guilty as everybody else. This is why I try to explain to you all the time. You're not righteous and good. We don't even realize how simple and devious sin corrupts and entangles us. (laughs) No, no, you don't get to flip Wilson me. The devil didn't make you do it. You wanted to. He just went, look at the shiny object, and you went, ooh, shiny object. It's it's not the shiny object's fault. That's That's a heart problem. So the law reveals. Now, why is that good news? Because Christian, well, we've now identified the problem. This is why I tell you to have that hard, long conversation with yourself in the mirror. Because when you're when you're honest about it and you reveal what's broken, you now have what? You now have the enemy. How many of you would like to go into the fight blindfolded in a dark room and fight against somebody whose eyes are open and has spotlight? Do you like your odds? No. That's why you have to be honest about your sin because that's where sin likes to live. It likes to hide in the dark and not shine the light and live over there in the corner where nobody's paying attention. You, Christian, shine the light of Christ. Reveal everything so that we can then do what? Kill it kill it with fire because we do not allow it to stand anywhere but that starts with being able to identify it and know what's wrong with it and know how it breaks me that's what paul is talking about that's what james is in a roundabout way talking about if when you're speaking against a brother and judging him passing that judgment you're not just judging him you're saying that i'm the arbiter of the law i'm the arbiter of the truth i'm the one who says who's in and who's out Well, this is where we get to ask my favorite Bible question. Who do you think you are (laughs) that you would do that? No, it's God's standard. It's God's revelation. It's his nature. We, I, one of my favorite lines in the house, I tell my, I tell Cameron this one all the time. I don't make the rules. I just live here. You don't like it. Don't argue with me. Argue with the person who made the rules. 
Let me know how that argument with God works out for you. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Remember, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be proving ourselves doers of the law, demonstrating our faith by our works, demonstration that the gospel message has actually changed us. The law is actually supposed to be a benefit for God's people. 1 Timothy 1. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Remember, go back to James 2. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So, wait a minute. How then do I use the law lawfully in Christ? Because aren't we free from the law? Aren't we no longer bound by it? I'm not arguing that you're not. How do I use it lawfully and beneficially then? Once again, what does the law do? Reveals character and nature of both God and me. Who he is, where I have fallen short, and what Christ has done about it. It's a sign for rejoicing, which is again why. Look in the mirror and have a nice, honest conversation. Don't just sit there and decide whether or not you need to shave that morning. Actually determine who you are. I almost said something about men and women, but I don't think most of you are that old, and I don't think enough of you are Italian, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, I say that as someone who is Italian, so look, some Italian grandmothers can grow a nice mustache sometimes. You, you have to admit that. You've never seen a good Italian grandmother mustache? I had one. I had one. Sweet, great, my great-grandmother had a nice little, like, handlebar going. It was entertainment. So yeah, so that's not what you're looking at when you look in the mirror. You're determining whether or not you have been honest with all of your life. Because again, sin corrupts how much of you? Fun little fancy theological term, the noetic effect of the fall, which means sin corrupts even your mind. N-O-E-T-I-C. Yeah, noetic. Hey, I spelled one right. I get to win the spelling bee. It affects even your mind. You lie to you. You hide your sin. You corrupt yourself. What I'm telling you is by the work of Christ, by the benefit of the Holy Spirit, to fight that, to look honestly and realistically at the commands of God and how they apply in your world. You're not the boss of you. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I have been crucified. I know that's backwards, but you get the point. I'm speaking a little Yoda today. By doing that work, You are exposing not just the rottenness around you, but the rottenness that is in you. This matters. And again, this is the starting point for how you live in a community of faith. Again, how do you help your brother remove the speck from his eye? By removing the log from yours. We walk by the same standard. So with that in mind, let's continue. Verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. Ooh, I know who that guy is. That's God. The Lord is our judge, Isaiah 33. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Ooh, I got that one. Not God. (laughs) Remember, this is one of the things you should remember all the time. God is God and I am not. Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts 
higher than your thoughts. Now, not a new idea, not a new teaching in the book thus far. What James is doing is building on everything. You don't pass judgment because that's not your job. You recognize who you are, where you stand, and why you stand there. So that when I come to a brother who is struggling, when I come to a brother who has gone astray, I do not come in condemnation. I do not come in righteousness. I come with righteousness. Not mine! Christ's. Reminding you, hey, this is broken, dude. But there is a Savior who puts it back together. And I know it's broken because (laughs) guess what I am? Just as broken. Again, when the world looks at you and goes, you're very self-righteous. I'm sorry. And I'm serious. That should be the response. I'm sorry because that's not where my righteousness comes from. My righteousness is alien to me. It comes from Christ. It is given. He is righteous. He is good. I am not. What do you bring to the salvation party? Sin. Go us. I bring all the filthiness and the yuck and the yick. It is Christ who cleans. It is Christ who redeems. So when we do this work, we remember that I'm not the one. Because here's the next question. Well, how do you know that it's broken? Ooh, ooh, ooh. There's a law. (laughs) It's not my standard. It's his. It's his diagnosis. It's his cure. It's his fix. Never mine. How many times have I told you, evaluate your life and bring me a Bible verse? Why did you do that? Why did you think like that? Why did you plan it like this? Bring me a Bible verse. Because, now, that doesn't mean there's like a commandment somewhere in like Third Colossians that tells you, hey, thou shalt. That's not what I mean. But there should be a biblical principle, a foundation of Scripture that underlies who you are and what you're doing. If there isn't, then I have a really important question. Why are you doing that? And why are you doing that in that way? And I'm serious, because if you can't bring that back to a biblical foundation, then what are you standing on? Because it's not like there's another pathway, narrow road that leads to life, broad road that leads to destruction. This is the evaluatory work that you're doing when you stare at yourself in the mirror, as you're sitting here saying, what's the foundation for this decision? What's the foundation for this action? Which, by the way, those should flow from one another. If they don't, you got bigger issues. How you think should always be influencing what you do. If it's not then you need to change and strengthen the way you're thinking by renewing your heart in Christ. Again, same concept. How do you live in wisdom? Repenting of your sins, recognizing that you were crucified, returning to Christ and living for him. So let's continue on with James. Actually, before we continue on, I'm going to protect you. You ready? We're going to put on your theological neck brace. James's argument is not changing James's way of expressing his argument is changing. And I'm pointing that because if I don't point that out, we're going we're gonna to suddenly whiplash into something else. What's the cure for your self-righteousness? Because that's really what James is hammering on here. You're not good. You follow Christ. And the cure is recognizing that it is in him that I stand and for him that I live and through him that I teach and instruct and walk. Okay, remember that. Verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Well, that just kind of switched. 
That, that sounds a little derogatory towards those of us who plan things, doesn't it? How many of you are in that marriage where one of you is the planner and the other one is the one running around like this when it's time to get packed up for vacation? <laughs> Every marriage has that, has that grouping. I've never, I've never seen, don't, don't come up to me afterwards, but I've never seen the two planners together. And, and if you are, don't invite me because it's probably weird because I'm a planner too and we'll hate each other, just so you know. <laughs> But see, have you ever noticed that? There's the planner in the family, and then there's the person who's like, ah, there's underwear in the bag. We're good to go. We got this. If I don't have it, I'll buy it when I get there. Christian, should you plan things? Should you plan some things out? Yes. Yes, you should. Luke 12, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. To fly by the seat of your pants is to not be super spiritual and trust in God. It's to say I'm trusting in the stuff that I've laid out, the stuff that has accumulated around me. Jesus teaches the crowds as they come into him. Do you just go to build the tower without first finding out if you got money? No. You'll run out of money and people will say what about you? Look at that fool, ran out of money. Do you go to battle and not stop before you shoot at somebody and go, one, two, three, four, hang on, hang on. All right, we got 10. How many's he got? He's got more than us. Like a lot more? A lot more. Okay, let's go negotiate first before somebody dies stupidly. That's wisdom, right? Do, do, do we all want to be in the charge of the light brigade here? Yeah, here we go. Do you want to be at the Alamo? Why not? Because what happened to everybody at the Alamo? Well, they got outnumbered and then they got what? They, they got all dead. <laughs> yeah. Wisdom says what? When there's 10 of us and a lot more than that of them, maybe there's another way to settle this problem because that's wise. We think through and we plan. Planning is not the problem. The problem is why? What's the issue here already? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Ooh, why are we going? Money, 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 money. I don't even know who sings that song. Normally, I do know my bad 70s music. Who is? Name that tune. No. <laughs> Yet, you do not know, verse 14, what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. There needs to be a poof in that verse, doesn't there? Shouldn't there be a poof there? You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. See, that should have been in there. This is why they don't let me do these things. What's your place in the universe? Why are you here? For what purpose are you here? And how long will you be here? See, this is an understanding that we don't think about on a day-to-day basis. Job 7, remember that my life is but a breath. Psalm 144, man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. If your life is lived for everything that is here, your life is lived for nothing. Why in the world would you live like that? Because according to James, you're a fool. What's the cure for a fool? He needs to receive wisdom. What is wisdom according to James? Forsaking this world, trusting in Christ, and living for him. See, it's the exact same argument. The reason why you do not pass judgment against your brother 
is because you let God do that. You come to your brother with God's standard and God's, God's rescue and God's redemption. The reason why you guard your heart and your mind when you're planning for things is because you are doing them not for your benefit, but for the building up of God's kingdom. Once again, the foundation and the focus are what matters. The heart being aligned with what the Spirit is doing. The mind then following after the desires of the heart. What does your heart desire, Christian? Answer that honestly, please. And you might want to do that to yourself because I'm not sure I want to know the answer. But that's the work we don't do. That, why do you think we have TVs, radios, 17 sports leagues, cell phones, book? I mean, why, why, why do you think most people pour all of that into their life day by day? I mean, if you want a fun challenge, do you, do you, here, I'll, I'll give you the answer. You don't like you, and most people don't. There's, there's actually a, um, oh, is it, I can never remember where it is. I've looked this up, and I can never remember. I think it's in Minnesota, but don't quote me on this. They actually built a negative sound room. <laughs> it's, it, for, it creeps people out because they, the, way you, the way you can build a room for acoustics and put sound dampening and things like that, they've done so much of this in this little sound booth that it actually absorbs more sound than you just sitting around creates. And I think the record for sitting in the room is like 15 minutes. <laughs> because you can actually hear your blood flowing in your body because there's no other sound. So you, it's not just you can hear your heartbeat. You can actually hear the flow of blood as it's going through the veins and the arteries. And people don't like that. I mean, now, admittedly so, but it's a little creepy, isn't it? But why are we so uncomfortable with the processes of our bodies? Why are we so uncomfortable with knowing how our body works and being acutely aware of it? Why do we have phones and TVs and radios? Because what happens when you sit quietly for 15, 20, 25 minutes? What do you start thinking about? What do you start telling yourself? What do you start worrying about? What do you, st have you Have you never had the experience of sitting there and like, why am I remembering the dumb thing that I said in 1998? <laughs> I can't be the only person that's ever done that. Like, you're in the shower and like, why am I reliving this conversation? You start counting what year it is. That was over 10 years ago. And why do I remember it so distinctly? Because you need to deal with it. You need to do something with it. I don't know what it is. Have the argument. Figure out how it should have gone and end your day. We don't do it because we don't like what it says about us. Christian, sit in the quiet. Sit and think. Sit and ponder because you need to think about who you are and why you're doing the things that you're doing. This is the hard work because the temptation, again, is just keep going, move on to the next thing. We, oh, there's, a, there's actually a theology, an entire theology based on this. Uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. This is what you'll get in a lot of church teaching. Is we're just going to make you feel better so that you can then go out into the world feeling good about yourself because you're wonderful. Again, if you grew up like I did and you, you, you know, was born in the early 80s, so went to school in the 80s and 90s, you're awesome. Self-esteem movement. We will overdose kids on this. Why? Because we want them to feel good about themselves because kids who feel good about themselves do better. No, they're not. Kids who feel good about themselves are jerks most of the time. Why? Because people who think they're amazing are usually people you don't like hanging out with. Because you know what they like to talk about? Their amazingness. <laughs> I mean, 
Isn't that one of the tricks they give you when you're dating? Make sure you talk and likes. Because nobody wants to be on a date with someone who talks about themselves. It's amazing how this all keeps coming back to the same idea. And now my brain, voice doesn't want to work. What's the cure for all of that? To remember that you're not good. To remember that you're not clever. To remember that you're not wise. To remember that you're not good. To remember that it is Christ who upholds you. Christ who redeems you. Christ who rescues you. And then to build your life and focus upon him. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Why? Why should you say that? Or in, in NASB, why ought you to say that? I should use ought more often. It makes me sound smarter. You ought to do that. First no, <laughs> Corinthians 10. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's not a new idea for Paul, by the way. Think of maybe an Old Testament place where a similar idea might be maybe a little bit more wordy. Maybe something along the lines of trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's wisdom in action. That's Proverbs 3. That's how you're supposed to be living your life. Proverbs is building upon the understanding of who God is versus who you is. Well, again, what is the law doing? It's revealing character and nature. His and ours. And when my character and nature are revealed and I see the holiness of God, I do what? I cry out to him in repentance and faith and trust that his instruction is what will carry me forward. That's what Proverbs is building upon. That's what James is building upon. That's what Paul is building upon. Would you like an example of what happens if you don't do that? Examples are fun, right? This is why your Old Testament is as long as it is. Joshua chapter 9. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard, that Josh, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they also acted craftily and sent out envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves and all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. So Joshua and crew are going into the promised land. They are laying waste to cities and conquering the land as God has said and when they go into the land, who are they supposed to kill? Everybody. Which nation are they supposed to make a treaty with? None of them. None of them. Why? Because Israel is being used as the judgment of God that goes all the way back to Genesis 15. They will be the instruments of God's righteousness, and that's what they're supposed to do. The Gibeonites are hearing of this and going, you know, we're counting the cost. And this God of theirs is killing Pretty much everybody who's on the other side of this. Now, proper wisdom would say what? We need to go and get on the other side. Yeah, doesn't do us any good to be on this side, but instead they come up with this plot. Let's make it look like we came from really, really far away. We'll travel in, make a treaty with them, and they'll sign off on it, right? So the men of Israel, if you fast forward, the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask of the counsel of the Lord. Oops. What could possibly go wrong? Living your life with your brilliance in front. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Oopsie. Why? Why have we violated God's command? Because we didn't actually follow what 
he told us to do. We thought we were smart. We thought we were brilliant. That is going to cause problems for Israel. This is 1450s. If you fast forward to the 11th century, a good 300 plus years later, Saul and David are going to have to deal with Gibeonites. And it's going to be a problem for Israel three plus centuries later because of this idiocy. Your sin has consequences. Your pride and your idolatry has consequences. What's the cure for these consequences, Christian? Live wisely in the world. Turn from yourself, repent of your sin, trust in Christ, and live for him. In which avenue of your life? See, because Joshua's looking at this going, well, this one's obvious. Look at their clothes, look at their sandals, look at the wineskins. Look, even the, even the bread is like a hockey puck. My goodness, surely we don't need to ask God about this one. This is obvious. Who lies to you? Who corrupts you the most? You do. No. Hard conversations. Paying attention and understanding that it is God's standard by which I walk. It is God's standard by which I make decisions, and it is God's redemption by which I stand. See, understanding. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. That's where I lean. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It's Proverbs 19 and Proverbs 14. My ideas aren't good. How many times have I told you don't listen to my ideas? I've told you that before. My ideas are not good or clever. Ask my wife. She hears all my ideas first and spares you from a, at least a third of them. At least. Hey, what do you think of... And then I just get the look. Like, okay, it's that bad. Gotcha. Sorry. <laughs> it seemed like a good idea, you know. So just realize, if you think my ideas are really bad, remember that it's my wife's fault. She didn't spare you from that one. <laughs> so I recognize that I am not good. What did God do? First Peter chapter 3. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In other words, as Paul puts it, when I was dead in my trespasses and sins... Christ died for the ungodly. That's what he has done. Despite my brokenness, despite my iniquity, despite everything that is me. Now, if he has died for that, why am I living for it? Just out of morbid curiosity. What's my call? That I too die to that and live for as it is, verse 16, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Why? Because of everything we've discussed. Christian, what do you have to boast about? By grace you have been saved. Through faith, in that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Why don't we have anything to boast about? Because we didn't do anything. Why don't I boast now, 10, 20, 30 years down the road? Because I still haven't done anything. I've dutifully followed along. Well, see, you followed. Isn't that reason for celebration? No, I didn't follow because I was good at it. I followed because I couldn't go anywhere else. I couldn't find another path. And Lord knows, I tried. I always remind you that there before the grace of God go I. It's not in your Bible, but it's a good idea. Because so often we look again out at the world and go, I can't believe. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can absolutely believe that they did that. Because if you were in that situation, what would you have done? 
The exact same thing. The exact same thing. You'd have followed along. You'd have done that. The only reason you're upset about that one is because that's not the place where you're tempted. That's not the place where your demons lie. Yours are over here. And we don't talk about them. We should. We need to. Because again, where is our boasting, Christian? Why can I again, why can I look at you and say, that is sin? Because I don't like it? Because God has declared. And by proclaiming to you where you have walked astride of God's commandment, I can then proclaim to you what? That there is a God in heaven who, although you have walked astray, calls you to himself and has provided the means by which that sin is covered and your righteousness is provided. So Paul tells you, 2 Corinthians 12, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. That's actually good news. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul's not bummed. Paul's response is, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I am well content with weakness, with insult, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. How does that work? Well, easy. When I'm weak, I'm reminded of who I am and where I am and why I'm here and what I'm supposed to be doing, that I'm strong. Because now I've surrendered myself. I'm no longer living for me. I'm following Christ. I've used this example before. This is why you get old. I'm serious. If you imagine a world in which you never got old, you were just strong up until the day you just died. Like you were cruising along like you were 19. Everything was awesome. And then you, and you were done for. <laughs> See, you like that. Yes. Because where would your trust be? Where would your hope be? This is the blessings of wisdom and age is that it's a reminder that you can't continue on the way you've always done things. You have to learn and trust and grow. I've told you before, I didn't always wear these. I had 2010 vision. I used to have fun on a baseball field because I could see the spin on a pitch. Can't do that now. Now I'm back to mostly 2020-ish with my glasses, and the astigmatism in my right eye is so bad that my right eye is still blurry with glasses. That's fun. No, it isn't. So what's the point? You don't trust in you. You don't trust your eyes. You don't trust your strength. You don't trust your vitality. You trust Christ. You're breaking down. Everything is breaking down because everything needs to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That's why you do it. That's why God does it. It's a blessing that you do not continue perfectly, because that's where his discipline and his instruction and his comfort are most clearly seen. See, so often something happens and something breaks, and we go, why did you do this? And we don't see it for what it is, a reminder that this world and the things of this world are passing away, some quicker than others. But by God's grace and his mercy, I don't pass away in him. I don't fade away from him. I remain secure in Christ because of his work and his provision. Therefore, 17, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. 
It's a great summation because what's his entire point? You live for Christ. Why? Because of all that he is and all that he has done. If you're not living for Christ, what have you discovered? Sin. You've discovered the area in your life that is corrupting you and dragging you down. So Christian, we recognize what constantly? That we need wisdom. And what does wisdom tell me? That I'm honest and open with who I am, evaluating my life in light of Christ, his commandments, and his mercy. Recognizing that it is not for me that I live, for me that I serve, and for me that I do anything, but it is for him and in him. Second Peter 2. If after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would be better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. There's not a verse you read a lot on a Sunday morning, is it? Why not? I'm serious. Why not? Because we don't like thinking about how broken sin is and what the consequences of following after it are. And also because we don't see it as a cause for celebration. Why aren't you walking in terror of that? I'm going to walk away. I'm going to walk the wrong direction. I'm going to leave Christ. Christ is going to forsake me. Now what do I do? Why don't you live like that? Because I've told you before, the person who's worried is the person who's secure. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will not cast you out. The fact that you care about your sin, that you're even listening to me tell you how much you need to hate yourself, is a sign that the Holy Spirit's going, are you paying attention? Are, are you evaluating? Are you walking? Because I've been telling you this stuff too. Which again, I tell you, don't listen to my words. The minute I step away from Scripture, what you do, do. Two things. Throw things and... Run screaming from the room. We're, we're, we're going to have drills. I'm going to have an alarm. I'm going to set it off. We'll give you hymnals, and we're, we're going to practice this one of these Sundays. I'm warning you now. <laughs> Actually, I should be warning me now, shouldn't I? <laughs> so, so the Sunday you see me come in with like a catcher's mask and like hockey pads, you know that's the day. <laughs> but why don't you fear living like that, Christian? Why don't you fear that reality? Because you're different. Why are you different? Because God has delivered on what he has promised. Uh, John 14. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. This is not your power, and if for a minute you think it is, you're in the wrong place. You just discovered, the minute you think you're going to accomplish something in your own power, you know what you just discovered? To him, it is sin. You just found your next area. Guess what you get to go to do? Go to work. It's time to kill it. And how do we kill it? By living in wisdom. What's wisdom? Recognizing that it is God who stands, me who falls. By turning from this world, turning from my sin, trusting in him, and walking down the pathway that he has provided. And as I see my brother walking a different direction, not going, hey, you know better. That's sin. Here's what God has proclaimed. And here is how God rescues. Here is what we live for. Here is where we're going, and here is why we're going to get there. That's what James cares about. Remember, this is a church that he's writing to. I haven't told you this in a few weeks. If you look at your front of your bulletin, that's the picture, the, the martyrdom of James. His church is undergoing persecution in Jerusalem. 
about two decades from now, they're going to get to him and chuck him off the temple. He believes what he's writing, and he stands like that because he's following what he's telling them to do. He's telling them to do this because the world hates them, and sin is ever-present and always around. And the temptations are that the world will love me if I just do this. And James's encouragement is the world, one, can't love you, and two, if you are capable of loving the world like that, then you do not love Christ. But because you love Christ, you do not love the world like that. So here is what we do, and that battle is every single day. It is in our hearts and in our minds and how we live, and it's part of the evaluation based again on what? Not my standard, his. Not in my power, in his. Not based on my hope, but the hope of all that he has done. It's again, we, we did the supper this morning. I tell you this almost every single time we do it. Yes, we celebrate and look back. Today was more focused on that. But many times we also remind you what? We also look forward. That the God who has died, the Christ who has redeemed, the one who has bled and suffered your penalty is the one who's coming back for you. Is the one who is building a kingdom where sin is undone and righteousness reigns because God is in its midst. That's where we look and that's where we live. Christian, that's the focus and that's what strengthens you to look in the mirror honestly and evaluate rightly. Follow after that because that's where James would have you to be. That's where the Holy Spirit is bringing you. Let's pray.